The American POTUS Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit show supported by listener patriots just like you. To help us keep the program going, please join others around the nation by considering a tax-deductible donation. You can make your contribution and see what exciting plans we have for new podcasts and other outreach programs at AmericanPOTUS.org. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. On this episode of American POTUS, Abraham Lincoln. Many consider him the nation's greatest president, a man of strong judgment, consistent leadership, and a humble, passionate focus on the common man. While these distinctive abilities did not always come to him easily, though, behind every critical decision and unforgettable speech was a personal struggle to come up with the right strategy and the right words. To show how he got there time and again, we're revealing the private, personal notes of the great emancipator, from Honest Abe's own pen to you, on this episode of American POTUS. I'm Scott Brunn. With the help of presidential scholar Alan Lowe, we're opening the book on the men who have held our nation's highest office. In each episode, we'll tap into our nationwide cabinet of historians, authors, experts, and others to reveal the most compelling moments from these extraordinary patriots. We're thrilled to welcome back to American POTUS our friend and best-selling author, Ron White. He joined us back in season one for a fascinating conversation about POTUS 16, which we encourage you to go back and check out. It's listed as episode 10 in the playlist. Well, that discussion was before his terrific new book came out, which is what we want to get into today. It's called Lincoln in Private, What His Personal Reflections Tell Us About Our Greatest President. As with all of Ron's books, we will link to this new title on our AmericanPOTUS.com website. Ron, welcome back to the show. We've missed you. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. It's wonderful to be back with both of you. I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Ron, it's great to hear your voice again. Really appreciate this. Always love everything you do, including this terrific new book. As we get started, can you tell us first about the writings you use to better understand the private Lincoln, what are called the fragments? Yes. This is a fascinating part of Lincoln that I think has not been fully appreciated or understood. He had a habit of writing little notes to himself on scraps of paper, and he never titled them, never dated them, never signed them, because he never thought we'd ever see them. (laughs) And some of them are called fragments because they are fragmentary. He would end in the middle of a sentence without a punctuation mark, just as you and I might be called away from something we're writing down by an interruption, a telephone call, an email, whatever it might be, he must have been called away. And so the fragment doesn't end neatly, but the gist of the fragment is there for us to read today. Was it something you think, did he do it throughout his life? Was it something he did consistently? I think he did it throughout his life. However, there is only one fragment from the 1830s. This is when he's a very young man. Why? Well, I think why, because think about this, he moved with his family from Indiana to Illinois in 1831, and then living in the small village of New Salem, he would often sleep in the back room of a store, or as a young man, he would board for three or four weeks with one family and then with another, a pattern of the day. Not actually a very easy way to keep track of all his notes. So there's only one in the 1830s. There's six in the 1840s. Now, in the 1840s, he's elected to Congress. But again, he's living in a boarding house, a single room. 
So the notes really in volume pick up in the 1850s and then into the 1860s. So where did where did you find all these fragments? Well, I asked the I knew of them in the the various volumes of Lincoln's writings, but then I turned to the new fairly new Lincoln Papers project in Springfield, Illinois, and I said, "How many do you have? How many do you think we have that have survived?" And they said, "111." Okay. And uh, I think there were hundreds more that didn't survive. We might want to talk about why they didn't, but 111. And so for the first time ever, all 111 are printed completely full in this new book in the appendix so people can see all of them. I then decided to write 10 chapters using 12 of the fragments that I think show different facets of what I call the private Lincoln, the private Lincoln often not seen as the public Lincoln. Mm -hmm. I know a little bit about that that papers project. It's, it's yes. a great project, right? <laughs> and I know they're doing terrific work up there. So I'm, I'm yes. glad they were able to help out, and and it, it led to uh, some amazing research and a terrific book. How, how long are the fragments typically? Would he are they a sentence? Are they longer than that? How how long do they typically? What's an average length for them? Probably the average length would be three or four paragraphs, but one is one sentence, and some are pages long. And so Lincoln, I think, had different purposes for the fragment, fragments, and so that's why they are of varying length. And, and of course, you said uh, you're sure many did not survive, of course, from his early life due to the circumstances, how he was living. What, what about later in life? What do you think became of those? Well, later in life, when the, the, the papers project uses then the term notes, and when he becomes president, he is still writing these notes to himself. But now they are much more formal. They are actually dated, and he does sign them, but yet they're not official papers. They're still thoughts that he's thinking himself as he tries to get inside of a problem or an issue that he must decide. Well, let's turn to some of those individual fragments that you highlight yes. in Lincoln in private. So uh, one of the first is from Lincoln, from Abraham and Mary's visit to Niagara Falls yes. in 1848. It's really a wonderful fragment. I know it will resonate with our listeners who have been to Niagara Falls, what did that fragment show you about Lincoln's view of the workings of the world? Well, I'm calling each of these chapters a different title for Lincoln, so I call this the Lyrical Lincoln, mm -hmm. the Transcendence of Niagara Falls. And what I'm attempting to show here is that usually we encounter the Logical Lincoln. Mm -hmm. Refreshing our memories, he grew up in Kentucky and Indiana in what the time period was called the Second Great Awakening. His parents were members of Baptist churches. He was kind of turned off by the emotionalism of that time period and determined that he would become a very rational, logical person, which he did become. But here we have a different side of Lincoln that we don't usually see in the public Lincoln. So let me just read a few lines. Niagara Falls, by what mysterious power is it that millions and millions are drawn from all parts of the world to gaze upon Niagara Falls? The last paragraph, but still there is more. It calls up the indefinite past when Columbus first sought this continent, when Christ suffered on the cross, when Moses led Israel through the Red Sea, nay, even when Adam first came from the hand of his maker, then as now, Niagara was roaring here. The eyes of the, that species of extinct giants whose bones fill the mounds of America 
have gazed on Niagara as ours do now. Contemporary with a whole race of men and older than the first man, Niagara is strong and fresh today as 10,000 years ago. The mammoth and the mastodon, now so long dead that fragments of their monstrous bones alone testify that they ever lived, have gazed on Niagara. In that long, long time, never still for a single moment, never dried, never froze, never slept, never rested. And then there's a comma. He doesn't complete the sentence. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but what a wonderful, challenging conclusion. Yes. Now, what I found interesting in this is that William Herndon, his law partner, positioned himself after Lincoln's death as the great interpreter of Lincoln, believing and boasting that he knew Lincoln better than anyone. Well, did he? When Lincoln returned to Springfield, came home to Springfield, why, Herndon had also been to, to uh, Niagara. So he asked Lincoln, what did he think about it? And this is what Herndon wrote down. Lincoln had no eye for the magnificence and grandeur of the scene, for the rapids, the mist, the angry waters, and the roar of the whirlpool. This Lincoln, according to Herndon, was heedless of beauty or awe. Really? <laughs> Actually, Lincoln had replied, the thing that struck me most forcibly when I saw the falls was where in the world did all that water come from? <laughs> so I'm titling this book, The Private Lincoln, because even Herndon didn't understand or appreciate this side of Lincoln, mm -hmm. even though they were law partners. So what do you think Lincoln's purpose, when he wrote that fragment, is it something he's writing down just because those are his thoughts? Is he going to use it in a presentation? Uh, what, what, did he have a purpose or is it just from his brain to the sheet of paper because he was thinking that and wanted to express it? Very good question. I think he probably had the purpose that he imagined himself becoming a lecturer. They were becoming very popular in the 1840s, 1850s. And whether or not his political career took off, he would become a lecturer. And so he actually did give several lectures later on. Surprisingly, they were not very successful. So I think he thought of this as perhaps the grist, the, the foundation, the basis of a future lecture. But interestingly, almost none of the fragments do appear in future lectures. Some, I think, were just his own working out problems for himself, but very few actually see the light of day in published lectures. He certainly also was working on a writing style, I would imagine, right? That's so, right, too. I mean, yeah, he was yeah. working on a writing style. And again, right. this is so fascinating. This is a lyrical style that is different than most of the writing styles we encounter in the public Lincoln. Mm-hmm. Now, though not a successful lecturer, he became a very successful lawyer. He did. And one of the earlier fragments you have uh, contains his thoughts about being a lawyer. What what do those observations tell us about his views of that profession? Well, again, refreshing our memory, Lincoln ran and was elected to a single term in Congress. But in that term, he challenged President James Polk and his leadership in the war with Mexico. In fact, he actually gave a very vociferous address in Congress where he challenged the spot where the Mexicans supposedly invaded the United States, actually saying he was quite certain the Americans were the ones who invaded Mexico. Well, this didn't win him all kinds of friends, 
Even though many Whigs, the predecessors of the Republican Party, were against the war with Mexico, many of his constituents viewed this as not correct that you would challenge a sitting president. So when he came home, he sort of was consigned to the fact that maybe I don't have a political career, and he turned full-time into becoming a lawyer. He started that career again in 1849. In that day, there were not very, very few law schools. What men wanted to do was to study with a practicing, sitting, successful lawyer. They wanted to do this with Lincoln. But Lincoln spent at least half of the year, every year, out on what was called the Eighth Judicial Circuit, an area in central Illinois larger than the state of Connecticut. So he believed he didn't have the time to be sitting in his law office mentoring young lawyers. So he imagined that he might give a lecture to lawyers. Again, we have no record that he ever gave such a lecture. But what we do have is what, remember, he didn't title these, but what an early editor titled it, Notes for a Law Lecture. Let me read the first couple of sentences. Sure. I am not an accomplished lawyer. Hmm. Wait a second. Wait, wait. By the time he wrote this, he was one of the most successful lawyers in Illinois. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine a modern leader, political no. <laughs> president of an organization saying, I am not? We don't say that today. No. I find quite as much material for a lecture in those points where I have failed as in those where I have been moderately successful. In my writing biographies, I'm very interested in how a person deals with their failures. We all fail. And can we learn from their failures? Mm -hmm. It's fascinating to me that Lincoln begins this lecture talking about his failures. And then he even says, I have been moderately successful. Well, that's pretty humble. He's been more than moderately successful. And then just one other section. This you asked earlier how long a, para, a note might be. Well, this is about five paragraphs. So it's not a full lecture. It's notes for a lecture. He says later on, discourage litigation. Persuade your neighbors to compromise whenever you can. Point out to them how the nominal winner is often the real loser in fees, expenses, and waste of time. And then this marvelous sentence, as a peacemaker, the lawyer has a superior opportunity of being a good man. There still will be business enough as a peacemaker. I make the point that Lincoln, very successful as a war president, he checked out books from the Library of Congress, he taught himself to be commander-in-chief. I think he was looking forward to a second term when he could be a peace president yes. because he had learned how to be a peace president as a lawyer. That's a fascinating um, and very sad thought, um, yes. what, what he could have done with that second term. Right. So you, you mentioned William Herndon earlier, who had the, the famous quote about Lincoln's ambition, saying it was a little engine that knew no rest. What do the fragments tell us about Lincoln's ambition and his concerns, which I know he expressed a few times that he was not going to make any mark on this world? Well, first of all, I think the, the fragments notes are really a way of us understanding Lincoln's own personal growth politically, religiously, uh, economically. This is the way he was kind of teasing out his own kind of moral compass. How, how would he deal with all the issues that would be coming forward? But to your second part of the question, Lincoln is viewed backwards as this remarkably popular, successful politician. Yes, he was. 
the four C-SPAN polls that have been done in the 21st century, presidential historian leadership polls all rank him number one. Mm -hmm. But then I found a note that really is not again part of the public Lincoln. In 1855, Lincoln ran for the United States Senate until the early 20th century. Senators were elected by state legislatures. And on the first seven ballots, Lincoln led. He was running against the Kansas-Nebraska Act, the Kansas-Nebraska Act passed in 1854, which allowed the possible extension of slavery west into the territories. His foe, Stephen Douglas, simply said, well, if people want to vote for slavery in Kansas or Nebraska, that's their right to do so. So Lincoln leads on the first seven ballots, but then he realizes he cannot win. And it is important to him that whoever does win must be also against the Kansas-Nebraska Act. Mm -hmm. So believe it or not, he supports a Democrat who ultimately becomes a Republican, Lyman Trumbull, who wins the senatorial seat. Well, in public, Lincoln was quite magnanimous. He was fine. I'm okay. I'll get along. Life will go on. But in private, he writes this note. 22 years ago, Stephen Douglas and I first became acquainted. His real opponent is Stephen Douglas, who was the mm -hmm. proponent of the Kansas-Nebraska Act. We were both young then, he a trifle younger than I. Even then, we were both ambitious, I perhaps quite as much as he. With me, and it's interesting, in these notes, he does what he does in his public speech. He underlines key words. So the mm -hmm. word me is underlined. The race of ambition has been a failure, a flat failure. With him, it has been one of splendid success. Wow. Wow. Nowhere in public life does Lincoln ever become so forthright in talking about his own failure. But privately, remember, he never thought we'd ever see these notes. With me, the race of ambition has been a failure, a flat failure. Mm. In less than four years, yes. he'll be elected president of the United States. That is amazing. This is a remarkable note. It really is. Uh, you, you mentioned the Kansas-Nebraska Act. Uh, what do those notes show at the same time about his views on slavery and uh, those who supported slavery and its extension? Well, when we talked earlier about the, the preponderance of notes, the largest number of notes concern slavery. That is the great issue of the 1850s, and it is the issue upon which Lincoln believes the fate of democracy, the fate of the nation, will rise or fall. And so he very much wants to talk about slavery. But before he talks about it, even before he re-enters the fray after the Kansas-Nebraska Act, I say he holds his fire. <clears throat> In other words, he doesn't speak for three months. Can you imagine in this 24-7 no. news cycle, no. someone in the midst of the great crises that we're facing, wait a second, I'm not going to speak for 10 days. Right. I'm working out my thoughts. No, we <laughs> demand that President Biden or whomever it might be speak mm -hmm. immediately after some event. And often they are forced to speak before I think they've really been able to gather their thoughts. So I said there were 111 notes. Actually, 110 are in the custodianship at Springfield. They digitized notes from many other libraries. One note is in a private library in Dallas, Texas. It's in the home of Harlan Crow. Yeah, I know Harlan, I've yes. been in that library. He has his own library attached to his home with his own full-time curator. And this, Harlan Crow says, and I agree with him, is the most valuable 
note uh, uh, in his entire library. Let me read it for you. It's very brief. Mm-hmm. If A can prove, this is written in 1854 as okay. the Kansas-Nebraska Act comes out. We say 1854, question mark. This is the guess of the editors. I think I agree with the editors. If A can prove, however conclusively, that he may have right in slave B, why may not B snatch the same argument and prove equally that he may enslave A? You say A is white and B is black. It is color then, the lighter, having the right to enslave the darker. Take care. By this rule, you are to be a slave to the first man you meet with a fairer skin than your own. Oh, you do not mean color exactly. You mean whites are intellectually the superiors to blacks and therefore have the right to enslave them. Take care again. By this rule, you are to be slave to the first man you meet with an intellect superior to your own. (laughs) But say you, it is a question of interest. And if you can make it your interest, you have the right to enslave another very well. And if he can make it his interest, he has the right to enslave you. Now, this fragment never appears in any public speech, but I believe it is Lincoln thinking out in his own remarkable way the meaning of slavery, those who defend it, those who must oppose it. Yeah. Another phenomenal note. And yes, I've been in Harlan's house many times when I was director of the Bush Library. And and, uh, that's a magnificent archives he has. uh, Just uh, archives, uh, paper records, books, uh, paintings, artifacts of all types, truly spectacular collection. And and you're right, I think none none more important than the note you you just read. Now, Ron, I know you and I have talked before and certainly it's, it's seen throughout Lincoln's career, particularly when he's in the White House, the, the vital role the, the Declaration of Independence played in his political philosophy, how it was the basis of what he believed America should be. How did you find that influence of the Declaration expressed in any of these notes, any of these fragments? Well, it's in a number. Thank you for making that point, which I fully agree with, that somehow as Lincoln re-entered the fray in 1854, after five years, literally as a full-time lawyer, he wants to go back to the founding of the country. And he argues that the founding of the country is not really the Constitution, as important as that is, but it is the Declaration of Independence. And this surfaces in a remarkable conversation, really, uh, with uh, Alexander Stevens, who will become the vice president of the Confederacy. But once upon a time, Alexander Stevens and Lincoln were both members of the 30th Congress. And Lincoln was very much drawn to Stevens, who was also a Whig, and saw in this young man from Georgia a very intelligent, very remarkable person. So when Lincoln heard in December of 1860, before South Carolina had withdrawn from the Union, that Stevens was actually against Georgia seceding from the Union, and that he had made a speech about that, why Lincoln writes to Stevens and says, I've heard about your speech. Would you send it to me? And so they, he sends the speech and Lincoln replies. But then Lincoln realizes, sadly, that Stevens and he are not on the same place at all. And he begins to realize that even moderate uh, Southerners 
are going to ultimately probably support secession. So he writes this note to himself, again, not a letter to Stevens, but a note to himself. Of course, Abraham Lincoln was born in Kentucky, my home state. I'm very proud of that. And you you include in this book a note that then-President-elect Lincoln wrote for an ultimately undelivered speech in the Commonwealth of Kentucky. Why was he hoping to deliver a speech there? Wonderful question. Uh, Lincoln embarked on February 11 on a 13-day inaugural train trip to Washington. Uh, Seward had told him to forego the trip because January 6 makes us appreciate this. He said, I'm worried that the Confederates are going to mount an attack when the Electoral College votes are cast in Washington. You need to get here sooner. And Lincoln says, I appreciate your concern, but I think it's really important that I do this trip because this is a way to rally support for the Union. But unknown to, again, most people, and it's not really lifted up in the most Lincoln biographies, is Lincoln also wanted to see if he could cross the Ohio River and speak in Kentucky. Why? Because he was born in Kentucky. He had a great affiliation for Kentucky. Mary was born in Kentucky. Uh, Henry Clay was his great beau ideal, he mm -hmm. called him. He was from Kentucky. So he wrote out a speech or he wrote notes for a speech that he would give in Kentucky. Well, he never gave it. We don't exactly know why, what happened. Probably when he got to Cincinnati, that would have been the closest point that he might have crossed over the river and given a speech. Who invited him to give the speech? We don't know that. But we do have these notes that he would give in Kentucky. Let me just read a little of it. I am grateful for the opportunity your invitation affords me to appear before an audience of my native state. During the present winter, it has been greatly pressed upon me by many patriotic citizens, Kentuckians among others, that I could, in my position, by a word, restore peace to the country. But what word? I have many words already before the public, and my position was given me on the faith of those words. Is the desired word to be confirmatory of these, or must it be contradictory to them? If the former, it is useless repetition. If the latter, it is dishonorable and treacherous. So here we have, again, how many paragraphs? It's about six paragraphs. And uh, at the end, he says, I do not deny the possibility that the people may err in an election. But if they do, the true cure is in the next election and not in the treachery of the party elected. So he does two things in this note. On the one hand, he really wants to affirm his solidarity with Kentucky, his love for Kentucky. But he also says, you wouldn't want any politician once elected to go back on the very principles that got him elected. It's quite a speech. Of course, during the war, Kentucky was of great importance to him, right? He said, if, if you lose Kentucky, it was of great it's, importance. He yeah. once said, I think he may have said this, at least legend says he said, I would like to have God on my side, but I must have Kentucky. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank, thank goodness uh, that, that stayed true. And um, uh, my, uh, my fellow Kentuckians were split, obviously, a very divided state, very but, but did not yeah. leave the Union, thankfully. So let's let's talk about the uh, one of the um, I think most amazing fragments you include. They're all they're all amazing, but this is the the meditation on divine will. And, and as you say, it's unlike anything Lincoln had written or spoken publicly to that point. What what does that that fragment tell us about his 
much debated religious views. Well, this is the first fragment that I ever encountered. I was starting into my Lincoln writing. I was intending to write a book on Lincoln's second inaugural address. And I heard that there was a fragment or note in the John Hay Library at Brown University. Well, why would it be there? Well, John Hay and John Nicolay were Lincoln's secretaries. And after Lincoln's death, they gathered up the Lincoln papers and then under the auspices of Lincoln's son, Robert, shipped them to Illinois. But Hay kept one of the papers that he found, and he gave it the title, Meditation on the Divine Will. Lincoln didn't title it. And mm -hmm. Hay believed that this was a clue to understanding Lincoln's faith pilgrimage. And I argue that historians, biographers, readers have allowed Lincoln to develop his politics, to develop his ideas on slavery, to develop his ideas on the economy. But somehow we've made him stuck in time in terms of his religion. So what was his religion? Well, I already said earlier, he reacted against the emotionalism of the Baptist churches his parents attended. And he did what many children then and now do. He rejected the faith mm -hmm. of his parents. When he moved to New Salem, he actually wrote a paper. Many people later wrote about this, criticizing the Bible and what he called revealed religion until someone in New Salem ripped it out of his hand and threw it into the fire. <laughs> Not a smart thing to do to criticize Christianity for an yeah. aspiring politician. But then I argue that life tumbled in. First, it was the death of Eddie in 1850, three and a half years old. 1862, the death of Willie when Lincoln is president. And at this moment, Lincoln, I think, is beginning to rethink his faith. He can't claim the faith of his parents. It's still too emotional. So he begins attending regularly the New York Avenue Presbyterian Church in Washington. Its minister, Phineas Densmore Gurley, was number one in his class at Princeton Seminary. In August of 1862, the end of August, the South won another, another victory against the North in the Second Battle of Bull Run, or sometimes called the Second Battle of Manassas. We believe, again, there's no date, that afternoon, Lincoln sat down and wrote out this meditation. At that cabinet meeting that, that morning, three secretaries, I'm glad they did, kept diaries. One of them said, Lincoln said, I am overwhelmed with such anguish, I'm almost ready to hang myself. Hmm. Then Lincoln writes this out. It's only nine sentences, so let me read it. The will of God prevails. In great contests, each party claims to act in accordance with the will of God. People were coming to Lincoln saying, God is on our side, but he knew they were coming to Jefferson Davis saying, God is on our side. Both may be and one must be wrong. Do you hear the logical Lincoln here? God cannot be for and against the same thing at the same time. In the present civil war, it is quite possible that God's purpose is something different, different from the purpose of either party. And yet the human instrumentalities, working just as they do, are of the best adaptation to affect his purpose. I'm almost ready to say this is probably true, that God wills this contest and wills that it shall not end yet. By his mere quiet power, I put in, I think Lincoln was tired of the noisy God of his youth, by his mere quiet power on the minds of the now contestants, he could have either saved or destroyed the Union without a human contest. 
and having begun, he could give the final victory to either side any day. This is why the note is in private. You're going to say out loud that God could give the victory to the Confederates? Are you kidding me? (laughs) No, he's not going to say that. And then the final sentence, yet the contest proceeds. And what I do in the chapter, the last chapter, which I call the Theological Lincoln, is I line up side by side the key phrases and words from the Meditation on the Divine Will and the key words and phrases from the Second Inaugural Address offered two and a half years later. Well, Lincoln will mention God 14 times, quote Scripture four times, invoke prayer three times, and argue that this is really the intellectual foundation of the Second Inaugural. Now, no one there on March 4, 1865, knew that Lincoln had ever written this. They didn't know that Lincoln was already thinking these thoughts two and a half years before, and somehow he decided finally on May, March 4, 1865 to become public with his own understanding of the way God does act in history. One of the most amazing speeches in American history in your book, Lincoln's Greatest Speech. I encourage everyone to go out and get it if they don't have it already. Everything, of course, by Ron White, but that's just a, an absolutely terrific book as well about uh, an amazing, truly amazing speech. Now, let me ask you this, Ron. When you look through these fragments, these notes, I know you said he didn't use them all in speeches or anything. They were often just his thoughts he was writing down. Did you see any major ideas that, that never came to fruition, either domestically or you know, in, in the execution of the war or any type of major, major um, kind of policy thought that never came to fruition that you saw in these fragments? Well, one of the... well. To, to answer, let me answer that in two ways. Okay. Stepping back a bit from your policy focus, what comes through in here is Lincoln's willingness to read the other side of the mm-hmm. argument. Mm-hmm. So, for example, he purchases a, a, a book, uh, a pro-slavery book, Slavery Ordained by God. He does a very incisive review of this book. He doesn't agree with it. He never talks about it in a public speech. And when his law partner Herndon and Lincoln returns from Congress, he says to Lincoln, well, we need to we need to order now some anti-slavery newspapers. Lincoln says, fine, let's do that. And then Lincoln says to Herndon, but we also need to order some Southern newspapers, one from Richmond, one from South Carolina. And Herndon says, well, why in the world would we do that? And Lincoln says, because we need both sides at the table. We need both sides at the table. The tragedy, is it not, of our modern situation is that we do not have both sides at the table. And so Lincoln didn't have to agree with the other side, but he needed to understand completely. I think this is part of his lawyer's mentality. You need to understand completely their point of view, their argument, really enter into it so that then he could enter into the larger conversation. Interesting. In terms of the ideas, one that is in the larger group of fragments and it's somewhat well known, is that Lincoln in 1864, August of 1864, receives word from the Republican National Committee meeting in New York that he cannot be reelected in 1864. They write to him and tell him that New York will vote against him. Illinois will vote against him. So Lincoln then writes out a little note. This is really a strange, interesting episode in which he says, when we are defeated for reelection, It will be our duty to cooperate with the new government that our nation may be saved. He brings it to a cabinet meeting that afternoon. 
He doesn't let people really read the note, but he wants them all, and they did sign the back of the note. He must have shared this verbally with them. And so that's an interesting policy it is. decision that he makes, believing that he will lose the election. Well, then Sherman takes Atlanta first part of September. Everything changes. He wins an overwhelming re-election against George McClellan. I'm not sure that I would say there's a whole lot of new policy things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's more, for me, the way Lincoln goes about forming his policies. I see. Now, you, you mentioned earlier in the appendix, you provide a great service. You present all the fragments, and I was yes. especially taken with those that show Lincoln's election planning. Very detailed. What do you believe yeah, those charts detailed. revealed? Yes, and I do provide where I thought is necessary as a, a little kind of preface to some of the fragments, trying to put them in context for the reader. Yes, way back into Illinois, Lincoln is really a party machinery guy, <laughs> and he very carefully follows and actually predicts or proposes or prognosticates how the votes are going to go in the various elections. He does this when he's also in the White House. He really is a political animal. This whole idea, again, isn't it wonderful to elect people who have no experience? Lincoln would be astounded by that. <laughs> no, we want to elect people with experience. Yeah, yeah. That's who should be our politicians today. <laughs> so, Ron, let's get a little further into the personal writing habits of POTUS 16, okay? Yes. All right, here we go. You've been focused on Abe's personal notes more than just about every historian out there. So how would you judge his penmanship compared to others in his day? Was he a wild chicken scratch kind of guy or was he more (laughs) elegant and graceful? Well, let's first remember that uh, everyone in those days practiced penmanship. I'm now writing a biography of Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, the wonderful Bowdoin College professor who won the day at Little Round Top at Gettysburg. And in my research, I found a what was called a copybook. And in that copybook, Chamberlain practiced his penmanship. Lincoln would have practiced his penmanship in his admittedly very limited public education. I asked again the people at Springfield, and they told me that Lincoln's handwriting, perhaps all of our handwriting, changed over time. So as he aged, it became smaller and more rounded. But it is a beautiful penmanship. And often when I'm speaking, I will put up the fragments on the screen in a PowerPoint because people can read the penmanship very easily. It's not, you don't have to transcribe it for someone. It's so easy to read. And this, but this is part of the age. People had good penmanship in the 19th century. I know we're talking about a lot of his own personal writings here, but did he often dictate writings to a secretary, like a personal secretary? I think he did dictate. Yes, he dictated to Hay and Nicolay and then some others that came on board in the White House. And and it often is difficult to know. Editors have struggled with this. Did he write this letter or not? For example, the very famous letter to Mrs. Bixby, the woman who had Mm -hmm. five sons in the Civil War. Yeah. For a long, long time, Lincoln, he wrote the letter. Now some others have said, no, I think John Hay wrote the letter. So it's, it's sometimes difficult to discern, you know, here's a busy, busy, busy president. Did he write all of these letters or did he delegate that to Hay or Nicolay? Now, he was a fairly private guy, but he had some amazing one-liners, the kind of thing that 
admittedly, would be great on Twitter today. <laughs> so do you think he would have been a user of social media if it existed in his day? I think he would have been yes and no. He would have been a user of social media because, as you suggest, he was a good one-liner. But I think it would have frustrated him in the 24-7 news cycle that Lincoln did not, as the myth goes, write the Gettysburg Address on the back of an envelope on the train to Gettysburg. He could never have done such a thing. His addresses were written over weeks, and they were rewritten. He was a rewriter. And unfortunately, I worry that that's slipping away. It has slipped away in our culture. We just push the send button for our email. We don't edit what we write. And uh, Lincoln would have found that a difficult environment to do the way he liked to write and speak. I love this part about Lincoln. He kept his notes in his top hat of all places. Ah. So was this a common practice among gentlemen of the day or was Abe just kind of quirky? You know, I don't know about the gentleman of the day. It was part of his habit. I mean, even after his assassination, people found various things stuck in his top hat. And, you know, he some of the notes he would have kept in his top hat. That was one way of keeping him at the ready. But uh, probably other persons did that, but I'm not able to comment on that. All right, Ron, my last question. He had many nicknames, but one of my favorites is the Ancient One because of his ancient wisdom. So do you have a favorite ancient-esque quote of his, something that really stands out to you? Well, one of the ones that I have really, really appreciated in, uh, in the fragments, and we talked earlier on about the, the, diff the different uh, length of these, is this one. As I would not be a slave, so I would not be a master. This expresses my idea of democracy. Whatever differs from this to the extent of the difference is no democracy. I have learned from the wonderful Lincoln scholar Douglas Wilson how Lincoln was a master at using the negative. Think about even the Gettysburg Address. He uses the negative to emphasize the positive. Whatever differs from this to the extent of the difference is no democracy. So this is a favorite one. Obviously, the other one, which I just think is so wonderful and so relevant again today, is with malice toward none, with charity for all. The final sentence of the second inaugural address is such a healing, such a reconciling address at a time when many in the audience, and I've read the letters and diaries of the people who were in the audience, wanted Lincoln to claim his own victory and to speak with great vengeance toward the South. Why? Because everybody in the audience had probably lost a father, husband, son, brother at the hands of the Confederacy, and they wanted Lincoln to condemn the Confederacy. But he didn't do that. He offered a speech of forgiveness and reconciliation. Well, Ron, you know, every time I talk with you, I learn more about Abraham Lincoln, and I'm always uh, amazed at how fortunate we were as a country oh. to have him as president, a good yes. and great man. Well, you mentioned your Chamberlain book. When when is that going to come out? Well, I hope it'll come out. It'll come out in early 2023. I thought I was hoping maybe next year, but the editing process, the publishing process, takes about 12 months. So I hope to finish the first draft in December, and then my wonderful editor, Caitlin McKenna, will get her hands back on it, and she'll come back to me, and I'll come back to her. <laughs> and it'll take a while. But it's, <laughs> I, I was in Maine for 12 days this summer. 
And I think it's a remarkable story, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, not only the hero of the Civil War, but governor of Maine four times, president of Bowdoin College, mm-hmm. probably to me the best person in what I call the second Civil War when people began writing and debating, arguing over the meaning of the war. He offers the most remarkable speeches about the meaning of the Civil War and the meaning of our nation. So I really enjoyed Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, a remarkable person. He learned nine languages. Can you imagine that? Hmm. <laughs> Unbelievable. Wow. I barely got English mastered. You know, Ron, years ago when I was uh, not real bright and didn't know my Civil War history um, much at all, I was uh, just moved to Washington and and this happened to go up to Gettysburg. Yes. I went to go to Gettysburg, and I happened on a ceremony oh. that day uh, on the uh, on oh. the little round top, and that's where I really suddenly was extraordinarily interested in Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. So I, I cannot wait to read. The well, little book. round top is now the most visited place in at Gettysburg. It wasn't fifty years ago, but because of the great uh, enthusiasm, interest in Chamberlain, it is now the most visited place at Gettysburg. Well, Ron, it's always wonderful to talk with you. Thank you so much for joining us again on American POTUS. Thank you for being with me in this conversation. Thanks for listening to this episode of the American POTUS podcast. We'd like to thank best-selling author Ron White for joining us on this episode about Abraham Lincoln. More information on all of his terrific books can be found on AmericanPOTUS.com. If you have questions on this episode or ideas for future topics, you can easily send us a note on AmericanPOTUS.com, Facebook, or Twitter. We'd also appreciate you taking the time to provide a positive rating and review on the player you're listening to right now. And if you're new to American POTUS, please check out the 50-plus episodes that are available on the playlist, covering the presidents and the presidency from the very beginning. Graphic design for American POTUS is by The Thought Bureau an original music score by Jonathan Clark Music. Finally, it's our presidential last word from Abraham Lincoln. Quote, give me six hours to chop down a tree, and I will spend the first four sharpening the axe.